and I am reading um, chapter 2, verses 16 to 23. When Herod realised that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious, and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity, who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel, for those who are trying to take the child's life are dead. So he got up, took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets. He will be called Nazarene. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Heavenly Father, we bow in your presence. May your word be our rule, your spirit our teacher, and your greater glory our supreme concern. We ask through Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, over the last 11 months or so since Russia invaded Ukraine, we've seen on our TVs, haven't we, a whole lot of suffering People displaced, separated, under fire, mistreated, killed, and often no rhyme or reason as to who is affected. Why this apartment building was hit? Why were these kids killed? Why this village to be the scene for some terrible atrocity? The war is evil, wrong unnecessary. And it's reminded us very forcibly that suffering is terribly real and arbitrary and unfair, as if we needed reminding. The people of Bethlehem at the time of this morning's Bible reading could have told us that. What happened there is terrible. It's evil when Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious, and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Herod is feeling threatened. We'll come back to his motives in a bit. And he decides that the best thing to do is to kill a bunch of baby boys, to deal with the threat. One of them, hopefully, will be this king of the Jews the wise men have been talking about. But in fact, the actual child he's after had escaped after divine intervention. We were hearing about that last week. And all Herod succeeds in doing is destroying a bunch of totally innocent families who had nothing to do with any of this. Herod the Great was notoriously cruel and ruthless. This is definitely one of his smaller massacres. 
This is a man who had his wife and mother-in-law and several of his sons executed to protect his own position. He's not too worried about a few peasant families. But for Bethlehem, this is going to be devastating. It's a small village. Estimates suggest that it might have been maybe between 10 and 30 families that would have been affected. That's the sort of size of place people reckon we're talking about and the sort of size of impact. Bad things happen to innocent people. Herod's to blame here. The children and their families are not, nor is God to blame, and Jesus, Mary, and Joseph aren't either. This is all Herod's doing. It's his evil, which he'll need to own on the day of judgment. And they mourn. Matthew quotes the prophet Jeremiah. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. Jeremiah is using the name of Rachel, the favorite wife of Jacob, to kind of personify the idea of the mother of all the tribes of Israel. He was describing God's people going into exile. That's what Jeremiah was describing. He was describing them going into exile as a tragedy and how all Israel would be expressing their grief at the exile, at God's chosen people being mistreated and at the attempts to kind of wipe them out. And now much later... In Jesus' time, this is a fresh attempt by Herod to wipe out God's chosen one. And in response to that great evil that he unleashes on Bethlehem, we see great weeping and mourning. It's worth just pausing and taking in something of the enormity of what's happened there. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. Suffering and hardship and struggle and unfairness happen in life. Sometimes because of a specific human evil, sometimes because of the general fallenness and brokenness of our world, sometimes for reasons that are hard to pin down, though we still ask. It's good not to rush on with this reading, but to remember, think of people who are struggling because of what they've experienced in our day, people in our church our community, our families, disappointment, loss of a loved one, personal health struggles, family breakdown, trouble at work or at school or at college or in the place where they live, people who experience bullying or abuse or victimization, people all around us, including people in this building right now, who are struggling with what has happened to them. 
do they feel that they can talk about that? That we're people who will listen, who want to know, who will stay with them while they weep. It's noticeable how Jeremiah, quoted by Matthew here, gives space for those emotions to pour out. Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. Let's make sure that in our joy at God's goodness, and he is good, that we also leave space for those whose joy is not yet complete and whose emotions are raw. Romans chapter 12 tells us to rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. And that sounds like a good plan to me. They say, don't they, comfort the disturbed and disturb the comfortable. And the people of Bethlehem certainly needed comfort, but what about Herod? The thing is, Herod can't win against God, but he thinks he's won already. Herod is into control in a big way. He perceives a threat. He eliminates that threat, he thinks. Herod's actually a bit of an outsider. He has Edomite ancestry, one of the neighboring nations living to the south of Israel. His family had converted to Judaism, but he still had a kind of outsider, not quite fitting in status. And his position's not that secure. He's a sort of client king. He ruled over the people of Israel, but under the overall Roman occupation. He's, he's the middleman. To the people below him, he is someone to fear, really fear. But to Rome, he's their local man on the ground who needs to run a tight ship and who is there at Rome's pleasure for as long as they are happy to keep him on. You understand why he's a bit twitchy about any potential rivals. So here come these wise men in Matthew 2 verse 2 saying, where's the one who's been born king of the Jews? And that's an instant red flag to Herod. King of the Jews is Herod's job right now. He'd been appointed in 40 BC by the Roman Senate. He'd married into the Hasmonean dynasty to help bring that into reality. And now he has his rule, which he's pretty pleased about, to maintain, thank you very much. How dare God or anyone else try to muscle in and take charge. This, this news of a baby king from these wise men, it's, it's inconvenient. It's a potential threat. And for Herod, as we've said, threats are something to be eliminated. Just how different is Herod to us? I mean, I'm, I'm not insinuating that anyone here has massacred a village worth of young boys. If I did think that, I would go to the police, not announce it in a sermon. Yeah? Sounds like a plan. But Jesus can be inconvenient to us too. He gets in the way. 
he keeps sticking his oar in. He claims to be Lord, to have authority over our lives. He claims to be God, the loving creator of the universe, who's stepped into the time and space he created, born as a man, coming to intervene decisively in human history to change how God and humanity relate to one another. He claims to determine moral standards. He claims to be the moral standard. He claims to know who I am and to know more about me than I know myself and to know why I'm here and what matters in my life. He, he claims he'll be our rightful judge. He says he sees the thoughts of our hearts, not just the words and the deeds that come out. And he claims to do all this not because he's some cosmic megalomaniac, but because of his love and care for his creation. Sometimes, I think for all of us, we'd find it much more convenient, frankly, if he'd just leave us alone. I've worked out my my own moral guidelines, thank you, which draw the lines just where I find them convenient. I've worked hard to learn some skills and then develop a career, and I'm proud of what I've achieved. I've put in the hard work to support my family and earn enough to be comfortable. I don't want this Jesus saying that he sets my priorities. He's no authority over my family life, my spare time, my holidays, my politics, my money, my attitudes to people who aren't like me. I could go on. I think what we find when we really think about it is that we can be pretty determined as well to get our own way and to avoid Jesus' claims on our lives. And I don't just mean people who wouldn't describe themselves as Christians. Within the church, we can be every bit as resistant, I think, to the idea of him having real authority. Some respond with outright hostility. Some by walking away. Some kind of talk over him. Or we let him be in charge of just some little part of our lives, a part just big enough to kid ourselves. Which areas of your life, of my life, are we most uncomfortable with Jesus knowing about, caring about, having views on? Jesus came precisely to forgive us those things. So, Herod thinks he's done everything possible to ensure that he wins, gets to keep his position, and squashes the threat. Herod doesn't win. Jesus wins. God will not let Herod's opposition stop his mission to save his people. They matter too much to God for that. And and there's a deep irony here. One fortunate boy is spared from the slaughter of the innocents. And years later, that one boy, now a man, 
goes on to defeat Herod's self-serving me-first attitude by giving up all the privilege that came with his divine nature and becoming the servant of us all. Jesus was saved as a small child in this reading from dying as an innocent victim in order that he might instead die as a man, as an innocent victim. A man without sin, but who was falsely accused, unjustly tried, crucified in my place and in yours. There's a curious line at the end of our reading. Joseph went and lived in a town called Nazareth, and so was fulfilled what was said through the prophets. He will be called a Nazarene. That's not a direct quotation from anywhere in the Old Testament. Rather, it's trying to point us to a theme in the Old Testament that the Messiah, when he came, would be despised and rejected by his people. Only one innocent needed to die. Despised, rejected, and killed once for the sins of the whole world. And here's another irony. His rejection was that once and for all culmination and center and fulfillment of all God's plans for the whole world. Herod had no understanding of what God was up to. He just knew he wanted to stop it, whatever it was. And he couldn't. Every reason we might give for rejecting or avoiding the claims of Jesus Christ, every step we might take to free ourselves from his influence and his call over our lives, every thought and attitude in us that tries to say no to him, all of them have already been nailed to that cross and borne by the innocent victim of Calvary. The innocent victim who escaped Herod's clutches precisely so that he could in time be the innocent victim to save and rescue and redeem us all. It's beautiful. It's far beyond anything that you or I or Herod could ever devise or imagine. He did it because he loves us. And he loves and comforts and sits alongside those who mourn and feel bereft. Everyone in today's Bible reading needs Jesus. The families of Bethlehem and the evil Herod and us reading the story today. Jesus is there for us all, whether to comfort the disturbed or to disturb the comfortable and bring us all to salvation. In that moment when humanity thinks it's finally managed to do away with God, Jesus has in fact won. Not a win by defeating us, but by redeeming us, changing us, consoling us, enabling us to approach God through Jesus' astonishing love. This Jesus offers a fresh start to everyone who's messed up and comfort to everyone who suffers and mourns. Hope for us all. Let's pray. God, our Father, thank you that whoever we are, 
in this reading. Jesus is for us. That he brings us comfort and hope when we're in despair. That he brings challenge and forgiveness to those who turned away. Thank you, Lord, for your son Jesus, that innocent victim of Calvary. Help us to trust in him, to know his goodness. Amen.